Hello old friends, welcome to I Love You Anyway. It's been a long time, once again. Um, some of you may have thought I was hanging it up, but I'm not. I'm just slowing it down. I feel like uh, the energy in the world these days is a bit frenetic, and um, it seems to be affecting all of the world's inhabitants inhabitants and um, myself included and so I've taken a good long look at my life and what I do and how I do it and decided that uh, it's important to, to sometimes just be just be who you are be as you are and not try to do I mean I like doing too I tend to keep busy usually but I'm trying to allow time and space to unravel or, uh, you know, play out as they will without governing how it happens. And the result of that is that I've just sort of slowed down my, my processes and I'm narrowing my focus into the one thing that I'm doing at that time and not trying to do a million things at once. And it's been nice. It's been, uh, it's been good for me, I think. Uh, but what, what it means is that sometimes the podcast takes a backseat to artwork or uh, life happenings or other things. But it doesn't mean that I'm going to stop doing it. Uh, I still really enjoy these conversations I have with all these lovely people. I feel really lucky to be able to connect in this way, and um, I plan to continue doing so at whatever pace uh, happens to suit my life at that time. So, um, sorry I can't make any more guarantees than that, but uh, I'm here right now, and this is episode 109, and my guest is my new friend, Marn Lucas. Uh, she's an artist, a photographer, uh, she does lots of stuff, and you're going to hear all about it. And I'm going to let her introduce herself. Um, I just have to cross over this little stream to get to her. Hi, my name is Marn Lucas. I'm often called Marnie by mistake based on the way my name appears, but I'm so not a Marnie. <laughs> my parents named me Marne. Uh, they saw the name in a book. It's a river in France that they have oh, not cool. seen, but they fell in love with the name and I think it really suits me. Uh, I'm the consummate water freak and oh, being okay. named after a river is quite nice. But, Are you a Pisces as well? I'm a Libra, but I'm a Pisces rising. Okay. And I was born in Hawaii, in Honolulu, Hawaii. So oh, wow. yeah, that worked out, <laughs> being born near the water. That's um, great. Have you ever met another Marn in your life? I've met lots of Marnies. Right. I have not met another Marn. Wow. Yeah, no wonder. So, so basically everyone probably gets your name wrong. Everyone gets my name wrong once they see it spelled, even if I introduce myself as Marn. Uh -huh. um, and then 
I had to do a lot of like book reports as a kid uh, on uh-huh. the Battle of the Marne, which is uh, between the French and the Germans in World War One. It's actually where trench fighting originated, which is not the best namesake. Um, right. And a complete peacenik. So to be named after, you know, a region that had a terrible battle with massive right. amounts of casualties and no real ground was gained. But you're named after the river. You're named after the river more than the Yes, I named after the river, not the battle, but it's funny right. because folks of a certain age who are much older now, um, they're like, Oh, Battle of the Marne, World War One. Like, oh right. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Well, soon nobody will remember you know, the younger the younger set will never have heard of anything because our history will be so so poorly taught. I agree with you. <laughs> so, so there'll be no reference point for your name, and you can just you know claim it's original. But it, so okay, so anyway, to get back to your um, uh, you were saying your parents named you that, and you grew up in Hawaii. Actually, I was born in Hawaii, and we left when I was almost three. And okay. moved to Portland, Oregon, and my dad was in the Navy. My parents are from Minnesota, so they had some dear friends uh, they met in Honolulu or who were also in the Navy, and they came to Portland um, to visit them and set up shop. So we moved to Portland, Oregon, and I spent my whole life in Portland until I was about 39, and then I moved to New York City. Oh, wow. So I grew up in Oregon with nature and activism and a real sense of personal freedom, you know, kind of a nature-based spiritual philosophy. My parents left the Catholic church and were fairly atheistic um, in their approach when I was younger. Um, But I was definitely raised with, you know, literature and nature being kind of the greatest um, sort of the highest order and also the ethos of leave the campsite cleaner than the way you found it. Wow. Which is a pretty good ethos for life. If you apply that to pretty nice values to hand down. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So I, I continue to use that. That's awesome. And I assume that has influenced your artistic practice as well. It really has as, as a younger artist, Uh, I'm a self-taught artist and I really resisted sort of being from Portland and being from Oregon and didn't want to make nature-based art. Uh, I think I was a very like drawn to urban situations as a kid. Uh, I kind of always felt like I was somehow in the wrong family in that my interests were like, I wanted to live in New York city. I wanted to live in the 1920s. (laughs) You know, I really felt like I was born at the wrong time in the wrong family I love my family. They're, they're absolutely fabulous, but my interest didn't match anybody around me growing up, Hmm. which I think drives, you know, the need to be an artist or a musician or a writer, you know, the need to have creative output. Right. Just, you mean, you mean just seeing that there's no other, there's no like really, there's no point of uh, reference to share with someone. So you have to kind of, Exactly. And I think my, you know, was my generation, you know, we had TV, but no computers. And so, you know, you either found inspiration in your surroundings or in the, you know, set of encyclopedias in your grandparents' house. Right. Did you have a world book or Britannica? 
uh, world book. Yeah, we had the same. Did you have the white, the white binding with the blue? Uh... I think it was a dark brown binding. I can't okay. quite remember. I love and those things. I, I lived, I lived I... in those encyclopedias as a kid. I loved it. I love that you could just crack it open to anywhere on any, you know, and find something out, and then you you couldn't help but jump around. You know, either keep reading from that page or keep scanning. Yeah, it was infinitely know. inspiring. Yeah, I thought so too. There's like imagery and little, just all this little, these little things, little tidbits of information, people and inventions and so cool, little geographical thing, insights. And yeah, I learned a lot from those, from having those around. And I think there was something nice about, there was a set amount of information in those books, whereas right. now with the internet, it's just, you could think of a random, any random concept Google it and then wormhole that way. Right. Is interesting, but there was something concrete about those little packets of information, like the images and the text. Yeah. And more satisfying, I think, to get, like, because you had to go in search of something. There might be a some reference to another thing you don't understand. Then you have to go find the other volume with that letter and, you know, start, start again. And that, to me, that's super exciting. And, there's a lot more mystery involved than just typing the exact question and getting the exact answer. I agree. And also having to read, you know, yeah. the generation that had to read everything. Now you get all these videos, which is, it's great. It's, I consider it like supporting information. And now that is the main way people digest information is short little videos, but coming from a generation where you had to read, I just, I love, I love words. And my, my parents both wrote, poetry they were both like working parents but they connected specifically in literature you know I'm the artist in the family but my parents were both writers and that they wrote a lot of poetry and so words were I think more important than art in my family mm -hmm. and I broke away from that by becoming an artist but I was a writer before I was an artist and mm. so to this day if I have something published that's written somehow that has not more value, but it's a different value. It's something I was raised with as being very important. Right. And the other book that I'm obsessed with is the thesaurus, a written thesaurus. Yeah. They're amazing. Yeah. That's another thing I could wormhole on for hours as a kid. Totally. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's great to reminisce about this stuff because you forget like how much like learning was actually really fun. And, and can still be if you choose to, you know, there are all these things, these mm -hmm. other resources out there. Um, but yeah, the, the training has all gone toward this one channel. It's one way of, you know, it's all about expediting. And uh, uh, the, to me, that takes the, you know, just making everything convenient and fast strips a lot of the, what's good about it right out of it. That convenience is, is tricky. You know, it's great if you have a deadline and you need a bunch of factual information, maybe in the context of a job or education, right. but just for, you know, Im imagination, curiosity, fascination, it's just so much nicer to be looking through books. And I think, I believe that books choose us sometimes, yeah. you know, I can go to bookstore and I grew up in Portland, Oregon, where we could go to Powell's Books you know, oh, as sort of like 
the mothership of bookstores, but we had so many beautiful little bookstores. And there used to be a place that had all old, old magazines. And you just go in and you would just let the title choose you. Mm-hmm. And then when you bought it and took it home to read it, it felt so special. Yep. It found you. Right. I love that. Have you ever had the experience where when you're, you're reading one book and then you're sort of drawn to, to the next, like you finish one and pick up another. I, this has been, well, I haven't been in a reading zone for a while, but back when I used to read a lot, I would, I would as soon as I finished a book, I would have three or four others ready that I was excited to get into. And I, I would always let them <laughs> decide which one it was going to be. You know the one that, and usually the the one that I picked, or almost always, there'd be some kind of reference that related to the last book that I read, or there'd be some kind like I, I've had this weird like chain effect where I read three or four books in a row, and there's a there's some point in each one that calls back to some I don't know there, there's yeah. either the either the context or character or something. There's is, a connecting thread, and it might just be. Is that some sort of aesthetic that is running through all the books you've maybe subconsciously chosen? But I do still believe that there's magic in that, that it's not just that your eyes caught four titles and made some connection between them and you have them stacked up to read, you know, in order. I do believe there's just a bit of magic. For sure. Yeah. Well, for those books and how yeah. you respond to them. I think so too. Yeah. And I, yeah, and I, well, the, I didn't explain it very clearly, but I would, the three or four books that were on deck would change. Like if I read, I would read one of those and then it would be a different set. Like I would just, I would just kind of always shuffling around in the, on the shelves. It's either going to be this, 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 or this. And, um, but they always would speak to me. And then the right one was the, it just always felt like it called to me and it was the right calling. And most people listening to this would probably think we're nuts, but um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I just, I feel like intuition is kind of everything. Like I, if you're, if you listen to it and you're, you really uh, follow what is being, you follow the way that you're being guided. I think you're going to find what you need, whether or not you think it's what you're looking for. I think you're going to find what you need. Precisely. I really live with an intuitive path as an artist, you know, as a, an activist, you know, I really use my intuition. I mean, I'm outside of the kind of regular programming of, you know, college, uh, graduate school, that sort of thing. I'm a self-taught artist and writer and activist, and I learn by, by doing and being, and I'm influenced by my community around me. And Mm -hmm that guides my decision-making, my life choices, you know, my lifestyle and my artistic practice. I totally sorry, use sorry to, sorry to interrupt you, but how are you influenced by your community? I am really interested in the intersection of art and health and activism. And I love working with marginalized communities. Um, I live in Harlem and, you know, my neighborhood has been hit particularly hard by the pandemic, but also has a lot of longstanding health issues. You know, it's sort of a food desert. Yep. 
Um, so I've had a long history of activism within equal access to healthcare. Um, in Portland, Oregon, I was part of a nonprofit called Danzine, and it was a nonprofit, a magazine, and we had a thrift store. We had all kinds of programs, but it was about harm reduction, mm-hmm. which is the concept of meeting people where they're at to make a safer decision that day concerning right. uh, drug use. I think that umbrella term of harm reduction is much like the ethos I grew up with of leave the campsite cleaner than the way you found it. You know, right. if you meet folks where they're at to make a better decision that day, it's it's very much about being in the moment and being present. We can't make society's problems with addiction go away, but you can help people, you know, get through their day and have a better day and be of less risk to others. Right. And so that that has just always really interested me, like, you know, having equal access to health care clean water, housing, regardless of if you are, you know, a drug user, sex worker, you know, uh, less than, you know, optimally housed. So that's just been a thread all through my life and, you know, comes into my artwork. Um, And now I live in Harlem and, you know, I was on the board of a high-risk health clinic for a couple of years. And it's actually the place where I get my medical and dental care. And I walked in the door and the folks were just so welcoming and non-judgmental. And I thought, and I could see that there were a lot of folks in need there. Yeah. Um, it serves LGBTQ folks, a uh, huge West African population, huge trans population. And I just thought, oh, I'm home. Like, I miss this. This is the kind of uh, mix of health and activism that I had in Portland, Oregon, that I was really missing in New York. And I kind of found my place and my people. And I think also I need to be in the service of others. Mm -hmm. In a a very, like, in a very tangible way, like you feel, because I know there, I feel like there are many, many, many ways to be of service to to fellow human and to the earth and everything on it. But I'm just curious it, for you, it's a, the compulsion is to be like physically actively doing service. Absolutely. And right. I think that has developed over time. When I was younger, I was really wanting to learn all these different modalities of how to be in the world and be a less judgmental person. And now it's very hands-on because I trained to become an end-of-life doula, which is a role that assists patients or clients and their families as they are in the you know dying process. Right. And that, that's a very also intuitive role. You can do a lot of training, but you really it's really a calling, but much like being a creative person. Right. You know, and for me now, it's like the intersection of being an artist and being an end of life doula. I have arrived at exactly what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life. And it's using all the skills I've collected in life. How awesome does that feel? It feels really good to finally know (laughs) what I'm going to be when I grow up. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'm I'm finally arriving. Yeah. You you grew up. I grew up. Feels like I'm a grown-up. That's awesome. But I absolutely have a juvenile sense of humor. And in a lot of ways, I'm the same person I was when I left home at 17. 
you know, yeah. moved out on my own. I'm in some ways I'm exactly good. that person. Yeah, I feel the same, and I think it's good. I think it's where youth comes from. You got You have to keep, you know, keep that spirit alive, in spite of everything, uh, or you're going to be a real sad sack, you know. Exactly, and our culture, you know, leads us down the road to sad sack. Definitely. Quite a bit. It invites you there with all these, you know, welcoming, warm, cozy, uh, alluring treats and you know diversions and things come this way and do nothing come over here yes. and stare at, stare at this where you don't get to be self-expressive ever well, diversions <laughs> and distractions yeah that keep us from really growing and and convenience like you know just immediacy and convenience and all these things that make us think we're comfortable but are actually just more diversions and more you know more you know, prettying up the facade and not really dealing with anything behind it. Um, I think to that point, the this is making me think of how the, you know, the pandemic, if, if you frame it as the great pause, mm -hmm. you know, we had to just sit with ourselves for two years. Um, I think a lot of folks were very uncomfortable with that. Sure. I felt like at the very beginning, I knew this was going to be, 18 months to two years and to mm -hmm. just get into it and kind of shed this uh, capitalist framework of you've got to constantly be productive and be proving that you're productive, you know, right. such as on social media. Yeah. You and, have, you, you're required to have a presence and be constantly pushing it. Right. Promoting and yeah, it sucks. So I just took that as like an opportunity to get into my head and nice. sort of develop ideas about my artistic practice, my ideas on death and dying, um, how to better serve my community once things lifted. And then, you know, I have another project that is really immense and difficult to produce uh, where it's called the Bardo Project, where I collaborate with terminally ill artists nationwide to mm -hmm. help them come up with a legacy project. And sort oh, of wow. sum up their life's work because if you get a shitty, pardon my French, you know, diagnosis, um, and you're suddenly terminally ill, you know, most of us haven't thought about what we would do in that time frame, right? In a diagnosis and death, and that being an early death. So that project is really complicated. Like my collaborators are not well; their energy levels are declining. They have to quit their jobs and be, you know, on assistance. And I have to try to meet them where they're at to try to make a legacy project and encourage them and interview them. Um, I'm a photographer. I make portraits of these folks. But during the pandemic, I couldn't really travel and continue this work in person. And I'm a people person. I need to be in person. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's a necessary evil of working on Zoom and the phone, but I was able to sort of really like reframe what is this project and how can I do it better and how can I maintain this in the long term? Because it's an intense body of work. These people become my family. Yeah, I can imagine. Anytime I photograph someone, I consider them part of my ohana. It's a Hawaiian term for family. And I think I collect people by collaborating with them or serving them. 
Hmm. I feel like I have a very large, you know, secondary family through all of this work. Yeah. And during like the great pause, I had to really retool my entire life and figure out like, how do I do things that are going to be sustainable in the long term and not sort of, uh, kind of kill myself over my projects, which I tend to do. Yeah. You know, I tend to get fascinated and just dive in. So it was interesting watching my peers sort of struggle with um, not being seen and not being kind of part of a social network. And right. for me, it felt good to power down and sort of step back and go, okay, how do I really reframe my work for the rest of my life? Not just the next five years or 10 years, but like, okay, I'm now in the last third of my life. What does that look like? And I, and then, you know, we don't like to think about that. Yeah, a lot of people don't. And it's easy to be super busy. And, you know, living in New York City is incredibly distracting place. Right. You can be fascinated every day just stepping out your front door and get nothing accomplished except people watching and you know, marveling at our, at, you know, what we've built as a culture. Yeah. It's true. I mean, you could kind of do that anywhere, but New York's the, the mega, you know, mega metropolis. It's the, it's the place where it's all happening all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so, but did you, so you felt like it was important for you in, when you were retooling your approach to actually have it figured out so that you could map out that last third of your life? Like, is, is that... You, re you really want something that you know you're going to be doing? It's not that I have to know all the answers because that's mm -hmm. never how I've been. Like all of my art projects just, you know, are based on pure inspiration and, okay. and responses to what's happening around me. Um, but I've never been this age before. Right. This is, it's very different to be, I'm, I mean, I'm five years post-menopause. That's, you know, all of my work used to be about beauty, intimacy, sexuality, the body, you know, oh. I photographed people nude and, you know, in intimate sort of situations for years and participated in all kinds of work like that. And then as I'm aging, you know, my perspective has really shifted about creativity and the work I'm making. And now it's all focused on death, dying, also just more spiritual transformation more loosely, um, and ideas on, you know, that the magic of transformation. And I don't have to have an answer of what the rest of my life is going to look like. Cause I never did that. I never did the, like, you go to college, you get married, you have kids, you know, yeah. I never had a prescribed life. I've lived outside that box my entire life. So I'm okay with going with the flow and having a circuitous intuitive path. I will continue to do that, but you know, my projects are so complicated. Um, mm. I thought, well, I should really step back and see if there's a better way to do this work. And I definitely came away from the pandemic with, I am in the right um, genre of work, like being an end of life doula, like people, everyone's going to die. Yep. We all pretend we're not going to die. And yet yep. no, we're all heading there. And it's interesting with the pandemic, like we're finally as a Western society facing mortality right. in a much bigger way. Yeah. Kind of the first, yeah, 
first time on this scale for sure. Yeah. And for many people, first time in a lifetime of, of any kind. You know, first. Right. I mean, um, I'm no stranger to death. I think for me, the most significant death was when I was 28. Um, my father died very young at age 51. So I've wow. just now so, outlived my father. Yeah. And I think I didn't realize then that that was going to shift my lifestyle and my art career and all of my interests towards death and dying. You know, his anniversary was March 15th. And so it's been 25 years since my wow. father died which is really interesting because my sense of time is so warped. You have the pandemic where we have no sense of time. Uh -huh. No one knows what day it is. My dad's anniversary just happened. And in some ways I'm such a different person because I have the experience of death under my belt, so to speak, but I'm also still the same person, same ridiculous sense of humor, you know, same love of music and art and nature and, and it's very weird to have outlived a parent and still feel like I still feel like you know in my mind I'm still you know 30 years old yeah and yeah. that was a pretty transformative thing to lose a parent so young and you know it was a messy it was a complicated messy death you know he um, died from severe pancreatitis as a result mm -hmm. of alcoholism which comes with its own, you know, kind of crazy family dynamics. Yeah. But I'm only now yeah. seeing the connection of growing up in an alcoholic household. It was like, you're, you know, classic, both together and not together family setting. And I think I'm using the sort of, I feel like I got a master's in, an honorary master's in codependence. Uh -huh. <laughs> And yet I'm able to, you know, I've done lots of personal work and counseling and I feel like I'm using those same skill set that I got from being the oldest of three daughters in this alcoholic household, you know, kind of mediating, mediating for my parents and siblings. Right. Those skills directly led me to being a, an end of life doula hmm. because I can walk into a, a room and kind of suss out, okay, what roles are happening here? Yeah. You know, who's doing what within this family setting? How do I need to navigate to and better serve the real skill. The dying that's, person? Yeah, that's what's exactly what's needed in that situation. So that's awesome that you, you feel like you can do it naturally. Yeah, it feels like that's where I gained that skill set yeah. initially. So here I am 25 years later, like I never, you know, if you told me when I was 28 years old and just, you know, trying to. I was just figuring out that I was an artist. I became a full-time working artist shortly after my dad's death. I decided like, okay, this is what I should be doing. Mm -hmm. You know, I shouldn't be uh, following the, you know, the kind of typical path. Good so it was kind of a huge gift. Yeah, really to figure it out that, at that age is really, really cool. Yeah, it was a really huge gift. And, it, you know, it's very tragic, but... I'm now seeing like what I've gained.
we can all look at our lives a little differently and, and consider the, that some stuff just unfolds like that. You know, it takes 25 years to get <laughs> to get the revelation. Mm -hmm. um, but that's cool. I mean, that's part of what the experience is about. It's finding your way and all the different things that help you along the way are there, you know, whether you see them or not. And I think it's kind of cool to look back and notice where the, where those turns were made. Um, it's exciting. It is, yeah. And especially when it lands you, you know, sometime in the future uh, at your calling. You know, the thing that you feel like you were made for. That's that's beautiful. Yeah, really, I, I, I had no idea it would be this. You know, I've always worked. Well, it didn't even exist. Death doulas weren't even, that wasn't even a, I mean, I'm sure it was in ancient cultures, but in Western society, that's a, that's a new concept. You know? Precisely. There are, you know, end of life doula is a pretty popular new uh, sort of career direction. It yeah. does tend to be a lot of well-intentioned white women like myself, you know, <laughs> in their mid fifties to, you know, uh, much older, but yes, all other you know, uh, cultures have had this role, you know, it's based, the Western role is of a doula is based on the birth doula concept of, you know, being there to support the mother and baby in, in a non-medical way, but it's more spiritual and, um, you know, holding right. space for that person. It's a support role. And, and even that is relatively new. In our yeah, exactly. It's taken 30 years for, birth doulas to get paid by insurance, it'll probably take maybe only 10 for end of life doulas to be paid by insurance. Right now we're still mostly private practice, but other cultures have always had these traditions. And, yeah. you know, because in the pandemic, I couldn't serve a lot of clients because, you know, I wasn't allowed to go into hospitals. People were calling me like I desperately need help, but I couldn't go visit their dying loved one in hospitals. Some folks will let me come into their homes because they really just wanted the support and were like, okay, we'll just wear a mask and deal with the risk. But I spent the pandemic trying to research like BIPOC doulas, whether they're birth doulas or end of life doulas or death doulas, as some people call it, um, just to get a handle on like other traditions, but also so that I can refer other doulas because I live in Harlem and can serve Harlem and the Bronx, but I may not be the right person for yeah. patients and families. So my neighbors know I'm a doula and will likely call on me because they don't know any other doulas, but I want to be able to provide doulas who have the same like cultural sensitivity and sense of humor and, you know, same sort of food and traditions. Because if you're yeah. having a baby or you're dying or you're having a wedding or whatever the, the life event is, or, you know, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, you want someone who understands your traditions and where you're coming from. You don't want to have Definitely. to explain it. Yeah, and it makes sense. While I might be a very intuitive and incredibly compassionate person, um, I realize I might not be the right fit. And um, so, yeah, it's like it is a new career. But it is based on, you know, traditions that have like long been around. Yeah. So are you, are you hoping to just establish a private practice where it's just you? Or would you like to have like a network of doulas who serve those different needs because they have different cultural backgrounds or experience? 
I have a part-time private practice, but I use, I did the training after starting the Bardo project. I didn't realize that I was sort of doing the role of an mm-hmm. end-of-life doula. And once I got the project off the ground, I did my training and realized that it was a good fit for me. So I'm mostly using my training and doula work in the context of the Bardo project with okay. terminally ill artists. Um, and I do already network quite a bit with other doulas. It's just, you know, we serve different, uh, different regions. We have different skill sets. Everybody has their own sort of specialty. Obviously yeah. mine is, I like to be bedside. I'm good with the dying process and I love doing legacy projects in advance with my clients, um, which yeah, they participate in. That's so, really cool. That's a, that's like an added thing that i've not heard of before you know like that's a that's a whole extra level of the experience for the whole family to be a part of one thing that all families enjoy everybody enjoys food so you can just have families come visit their loved one who's you know dying and bring their favorite recipe that they've enjoyed as a family and you can mm-hmm. assemble those in a book and make copies for everyone, friends and family. It's a way to like share tradition and culture because, you know, yeah. we do kind of lose some of these cultures, right? Everything is online. Everything is digital. Sometimes it's nice to have a tangible physical object that everyone collaborates on. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, the concept of like slow food. Mm-hmm. I think we should use like slow production you know, when working with the dying, like everybody can come in and contribute. I like that. I like that idea a lot. Slow production. uh, I'm trying to apply that to my artistic practice. It's hard. (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like I'm not, I work slowly, at least currently in my, in my current medium, which is collage, paper collage. I had Um, no idea. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's, um, it's a fairly well yeah it's a it's a somewhat recent discovery that this is this is the medium that i feel pulled to um and i'm realizing that i can do a lot more with it than i than i had ever considered and i'm really excited about where i'm headed but i'm right at the beginning um so i don't even have much to to show or talk about in terms of what of the ideas, you know, and I don't, I generally don't talk about the ideas ahead of time anyway. I just I love the working collage. This Thanks. also, I think collage making points to intuition and being in the moment as well. Um, I started doing collage when I was, you know, a teenager, never showed them to anyone, but it's something I would do to just sort of work through ideas cool. and, you know, sometimes you don't even have to commit the collage to gluing it down. You could spend right. months moving it around and setting a piece of glass on it or plexiglass on top. And sometimes it's just the process of doing that is so meditative and therapeutic. And in recent years, in the last five years, I started getting back into making collages. And I do collage workshops with the public at my art exhibitions that are related to death and dying. Oh, that's awesome. I bring the public in and I I provide them with like gorgeous fine art books and magazines. Like there's no crappy doctor's office magazines. It's all (laughs) 
high-end art books that I, you know, spend, I'll spend like three years sort of curating a selection of books. And I try to get every kind of uh, natural setting, um, hobbies, religions, um, plants, animals, and so that everybody has something that they can relate to. Right. And I'll bring in tables and chairs and invite the public to come in. And then I have like little prompts on paper that are just little questions asking people about ideas on mortality and death and dying. And I ask them to like, just look at this question, meditate on it, give yourself a half an hour to look at all the materials and start tearing things out. And then just let your mind wander. And people make these gorgeous collages that always blow me away. And then afterwards they say, I've never made one before. Wow. And they're stunning. They're stunning. So I photographed the collages and there's some of them on my website, but I find that that's a really great way to engage the public to talk about, you know, the, the dark thing in the room. No one wants to address death. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really great idea. And it is, it is a medium that anybody could at least start with, do something with and feel satisfied that they, you know, represented something of an idea of what they had in their head. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, especially with the right materials. But the, for me, what I, my, my, the reason for bringing it up for me is that I've, this slow production thing has become, uh, I've just sort of sunken into it as a, as a way of, well, it's kind of, it, it's also how it was a big reset for me, the whole lockdown and, um, and actually a very welcome one. I had been in a motorcycle accident not long before and was still recuperating and not in my best, you know, state of mind. And, uh, so I, I really was happy to have lots and lots of time alone and at home. And I still, I, that's kind of where I feel happiest anyway. Um, and now everything I make, uh, it's like spread out all over the place. I had to go I pulled another table off the street the other day because I hated more, you know, horizontal surface and uh i just spread out like 10 different things at the same time and i'm working on all of them and i'm constantly cutting out new stuff and it's it's sort of like there's no way to do i can make a collage quickly and it might be i might even be happy with it but i'm really enjoying the long process like i'm enjoying it having it spread out and not i am a little i have a deadline because i have a show in august but um I kind of don't want to live in a rush about anything anymore. Um, so it's not fun. I don't want the added stress and I'd rather just be enjoying what I'm doing. And so, I, so slow is good for me these days. And I'd That's be happy beautiful. to keep it, keep this pace like for the rest, you know, if I get another 50 years or, or 40 or 30 or whatever, I'd be happy to do it at this pace or even continue to slow down. Um, and then eventually just turn into energy and, you know, rejoin the source of all things. Oh, beautiful. (laughs) So uh, we'll see. That's, that's my goal. And I'm, and I've never in my life had a long-term goal about anything. So it feels pretty good to, to say like, I, I think I could do this, just make art and music and, you know, hang out with friends whenever I can and, pet animals when I see them and 
get, you know, support my daughter and whatever she wants to do. And that's good. That's a good life for me. I don't need status or fame or any of the other shit. Exactly. You're living so, in the moment. I mean, living in the moment and being creative and. Oh. Yeah. I'm, I'm never more in the moment than when I'm being creative. Like I can't, I can't be more present than I'm, I'm making art or music. And, uh, and I'm just super grateful to be able to do it at all. So if I can make my whole life be shaped around that, that's a miracle. something earlier in my life point to you know show me I, I don't know I don't, I'm not actually gonna not even gonna express the regret I, I'm I am where I am I got here the way that I got here and I'm starting from here and I'm pretty happy about the direction it sounds like a beautiful place <laughs> if this is your starting point it sounds uh, actually quite accomplished in that you get a lot of pleasure from your life. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's a new thing to, to even make that a, a goal. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize that was something you were allowed to do. Um, I mean, I did sort of in a hedonistic way. <laughs> um, sure. for, Hedon Hedonism is a great distraction. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm a Libra. We're consummate hedonists. Yeah. It can also be a great teacher. Um, you know, you, you, you tend to hit your head against more walls than the average person, but um, <laughs> you do, you learn, you, you learn things quickly and in, in real time. Um, so, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know if you know my brother, Eric White. Um, he's a, he's a friend of Paul. He's the reason I met Paul. Right. Um, right. And he's an accomplished painter and he's been, you know, he knew when he was a, a kid. He knew by the time I was born and he was four, he knew he was going to be a painter. And, and I didn't have that growing up. I had, you know, there are lots of things I like to do. And I, you know, I had a few talents and was excited to explore all kinds of different things. But I, since I didn't have this, this inner voice saying, you're going to do this, I, I just kind of bounced all over the place. And then that inner voice finally arrived and it did say, you're going to do this. You're, you're also an artist, but, um, you know, I was many... late to that party as well. The artist. Yeah. I, well, I, yeah, you said you knew, you moved to New York at 39. That's, that's a, 
that's quite late. I mean, I wish, you know, I don't want to regret anything either. I wish though that I had moved sooner. I was obsessed with the idea of moving to New York yeah, um, sounds like at a very early age. You know, my parents were like, who is this kid that wants to live in New York City? <laughs> right. But, They're like, let's go look at this waterfall. Exactly. Exactly. But I always knew at a very young age that I was going to have a creative life. I was always interested in art and music and film and, you know, nature. And I just didn't, it wasn't presented to me that that was an option as a, like, here's your career and your lifestyle. You know, right. my parents academics were very important to my parents and the choices were more like, you know, I expressed an interest in dentistry oh, and marine biology. Okay. Like when I was really little, maybe five years old, I wanted to be an archaeologist. By the time I was eight, I wanted to be a dentist. Um, and then by the time I was like 11 or 12, I wanted to be a marine biologist. So it's sort of like spelunking around in bones and the body or sea creatures. Uh -huh. um, but that's because the framework that was presented to me was like, you have to choose a, a specific career. And those right. are all things I'm still fascinated with art and science. Um, I love science and biology mm -hmm. and was always very rooted in that until I dealt with death. And then I went into a more metaphysical, sort of a metaphysical headspace, but I wasn't cut out to be a scientist in terms of math. I flunked out of math my entire life and yet hmm. aced everything else. Huh. Um, but I wasn't allowed to take art classes. I've had one art class in my entire life when I was in eighth grade. And you I- mean your parents wouldn't allow it? Or? Yeah, well, my dad was chairman of the school board and academic you know, subjects were more sort of respected and okay. I was good at languages. So I was taking like French, German, and Arabic. In Holy high shit. school, all three. Yeah, which was ridiculous, right? That's it's, nuts. Yeah, and you just you can't do all three at the same time. No, I found out the hard way. That's not really how your brain processes. No, three languages at once. That's insane. No. Yeah, so becoming an artist was sort of like I was the muse for many, many artists for so many years. I was sort of the person like supporting artists posing for them, organizing projects or organizing, you know, photo shoots, film mm. shoots, being in films. Um, then I got into being like a wardrobe stylist and working on casting and shooting stills on set. And I just sort of evolved, but didn't see that I was an artist. I was the last person to figure that out. Huh. And then when my dad died, it was like a lightning bolt, you know, of like inspiration, like, Oh, I get it. I'm an artist. Okay quit screwing around and live your life as an artist. So I just started from that point. Um, and yeah, so I don't have, you know, an arts education. I'm self-taught. I just sort of figured things out along the way. And I've always been incredibly productive and busy as a creative person. And even if the capitalistic construct of being an artist was removed, I would still live a creative life, sort of like what you were talking about, your lifestyle that you've arrived at that is making you happy. It's yeah. choosing a creative life. That's what I will do for the rest of my life. I will be in the service of others and I will have a creative life. Um, I'm not concerned so much about, quote, success. Yeah. It's nice Good. to be taken seriously. It's nice to, you know, engage with 
your peers and the public about ideas about art and creativity, but I don't know, the pandemic made me feel much better about sort of abandoning this capitalist idea of both capitalist and patriarchal ideas about success. Right. I'm largely, I just, if I could be in a flow state much of the time, I'd be so happy. <laughs> yeah. I feel that for everyone. I feel like if everybody could just find their, their thing and spend as much time of the day doing that as possible, the whole world would be a happier place and take all the other things off the table. Like take the other, I mean, the other goals are all, all fabricated construct. Everything about success is a fabrication. You know, it's really, you're really only successful if you're doing what you want to be doing, I think. And at the end of life, most folks, that I've encountered don't talk about all of the success they've had as the thing they're leaving the planet with. Right. They talk about their love and family and and friends and deeper, meaningful connections. Yeah. um, That really bring you happiness and you can't take any of this stuff with you. And yet we're so obsessed with um, material goods and you know success but you can't i mean you can't i mean yes a legacy of having some sort of successful um project that you leave behind that that can be very important but i think for me the glue that keeps everything together in the universe is love yep (laughs) you know it's love and energy and i think while i'm love science and i believe that physics and you know, quantum physics are at play. I really, you know, based on my experiences with death and dying and plant medicine and other things, I think love is the sort of uh, connecting thread and the kind of glue of the universe. I totally agree. And I also think it uh, would make a much better goal than any other goal, you know. If you go, if you set out to just be loving, as a as a rule, instead of setting out to make a million dollars or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. buy, you know, buy land, whatever, whatever the, whatever we're told we're supposed to do to secure our future, um, I think it's mostly, like I said, fabricated. It's just it's made up stuff. It's all the rules that we told ourselves we have to follow, and then we follow them. Uh, but love supersedes all of that. And, you know, if you take everything else away, that that will still remain. And exactly. It, and it is the thing that, of course, as you're transitioning from life into death, that w- that makes sense that you would be carried carried through it in a, on a, you know, cloud of love, <laughs> however you want to visualize it, you're, you're being lovingly transformed energetically uh, you know, back to source. I think back, that's how I see it and call it whatever you, whatever works for you. But, um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I know there are people that believe that when you die, it's all darkness and you go in the ground and that's it. And that's, I used to think that, I mean, I grew up in a very like scientific mind, you know, my, the yeah. first thing I ever saw die was, I, we used to raise little like pet rabbits and, uh-huh. 
I remember one of the rabbits, like, you know, I came out to the cage and the rabbit was dead. And I remember being just devastated. I was a little girl. Right. And we, my dad had us bury the rabbit in one of the flat. We had like a flower bed, raised flower bed. And I wanted to plant it near some tulips. And, you know, I was devastated that we were going to put the dirt on this bunny and soft fur. And it was like cold and kind of firm. And I was just mortified and so upset. And then like three months later, I'm playing outside and I remembered, oh, that's where I buried the rabbit. And so I got a little spade out and I dug it up and there was just this super dark, rich soil, like completely better soil than all the soil around it. And I was completely stunned and just like the wonder of like this beautiful, fluffy little rabbit turned into this rich soil blew my mind, but also completely turned me on to science. Wow. That's so, so cool. So that was like such a potent moment. And I really did believe that, yes, you become compost and go back into the ground and therefore you are a form of energy that can't be created nor destroyed. I believe that the cycles of life were completely biological. I had no ability to kind of glean a spiritual component of that and my parents were raised catholic and rejected that faith so we didn't go to church i wasn't given any kind of spiritual framework except for nature and you know as i got older i started thinking like okay well now nature is of the highest order sort of above us we're part of it but we should stop abusing it right it's And, you know, as I got older and older and had more and more experiences with death and dying, I've had some very strange experiences I can't explain, but I accept them to be truth Yeah. about that energy that we just become love and energy. And if you think about it, if, if you've lost someone who's died, you love them when they're in their physical form. And just because they die, you don't really stop loving them. You still love that person. Absolutely. You can't touch the physical form. You can't touch the rich dirt they've become. Right. And and most of the time that's true of of all of your living loved ones too. Like you're not yes. you're not physically touching them, you're just living with the memory of them and you love them because of the, you know, because of all your shared experience. So yeah, that why would that go away when the body I, I mean that I totally understand the the sadness and the loss and the you know, just in knowing that you'll never physically see that person again. But uh, I don't feel like it's, well, I personally have just never put that much uh, weight on the the actual body being what, who the person is, you know, I've never, mm-hmm. I've never really seen that as the, I, I see it as the container. And um, it is a container. It's a beautiful container. And I love being stuck in this container for as long yeah, as yeah. possible. I am a hedonist. I love being in this body. I yeah. love experiencing what it can do. And, and, and I think we're meant to like that. We're the, our body is here for us to enjoy. And we, you know, all, all the pleasures that we can, you know, dream up are, are there for us to ex- experience um, while in this physical form. But it's not the end of it's not it's not everything. I don't right. think I think it, there was there was something going on before this body, and there's something going on after, and uh, it's a continuous flow of all things. Uh, you know, if if you can imagine it as just energy, I think it's easier to take 
form out of it completely and just say, yeah, we're all fluidly interchanging energy all the time. And not just us, but everything, all, all, you know, inanimate, so, so-called inanimate objects. They're right. just, they're just vibrating at a lower frequency. They're super dense. Um, and I think that as we transition into death, our, the density of our vibration dissipates and we, uh, vibrate right on up into the, you know, the non-material plane of, of energy. Um, I love that. Yeah, I do too. And it, and it's the only thing that really makes sense to me. Like none of the other, there's nothing religious about it. There's no, you know, it is, you can talk about it in terms of God, but, um, but that's just another word for what is, you know, for an idea. Yeah. God, God equals energy. Yeah. You could say God is love. God is energy. God is consciousness. You know, you could say lots of things and none of them really matter. It's your own, it's your own subjective view of it that matters. And the thing, we only name things so that we can communicate it to someone else. But if you hold it for yourself, you don't need a name. And and that's true with any belief too. You don't really need to be able to explain your beliefs to people. If you believe them, you know, they're right. real for you. They're true for you. Yeah. So, um, and I think that it, your beliefs have a huge impact on your experience and including, you know, all about dying, everything you believe about death. If you, if you live in fear of it, uh, you're going to have a harder time letting go when the time comes. And if you welcome it as just a natural part of the picture, then I think you're going to, you're, that will help you, will help you move on. Absolutely. I see a lot of folks struggling at the end of life and it tends to be, yeah, folks who haven't embraced death, you know, as same as birth, you know, it's a cycle of life and that can cause a lot of, you know, uh, real damage to our sense of self, you know, not being able to accept death. bringing back to the conversation about energy. Um, one of the, one of the bodies of work I've been doing um, off and on for like the last 25 years is uh, now it's titled transmundane. So it's oh, nice. of what's in the celestial and beyond. Um, I use, you know, this kind of military grade uh, thermal imaging gear which oh, cool. registers the heat of the body. So it shows actual, the body looks like a light source. We look like a sort of illuminated um, being. You can see right. the breath. Which, which we are. Right, right. <laughs> so Carl Sagan talks about how we are made of star stuff. Uh-huh. And we are a way for the universe to know itself. And right. so I use this technology to kind of show this literal energy of the human body within landscapes um, That's cool. 
And so it's very surreal looking, like it's black and white. It's very eerie. Whatever is hot glows and is white. And anything that's cool or wet is dark, gray or black. So it's a very like simplistic way of looking at the light of the body. But I'm using it now to kind of talk, just, you know, show our sort of uh, fragility of our existence as these little light sources, these little light, light, like, you know, that we're being beings of light or a light body. So I'm using it in a conceptual way, but here it is this very, uh, you know, it's technology associated with military or border or surveillance use, but I use it to kind of talk about life, the life cycles, you know, death transformation and the idea that we, come from the stars and we return to the stars. That's really cool. I like that you've co-opted that gear for that purpose. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, like a kinder, gentler way of using that technology. Yeah. A more interesting one too. And to me, um, more so than surveillance and <laughs> hunting. Right. Right. Um, so, wow. Well, it, if um, I'm trying, I'm just, <clears throat> well, I want to hear more about your, like the fact that you have a project that you've been doing for 25 years is pretty cool to me <laughs> that it's like, you're still pursuing that and it's changing and changing names and stuff. Um, I'm, I think I'm still fascinated with this technology. And part of the reason I've been at it so long is that it's very hard to obtain uh-huh. So the the first project I did was in 1995 with an artist, uh, Jakob Pander, and we were based in Portland, Oregon, and we sort of surreptitiously obtained this technology. Okay. Um, and then so we we made a film in 94 and it came out in 95. So that's on the very front end of this technology, sort of. Oh, cool. um, I mean, it was around, I think, since the 70s, but, you know, it wasn't very portable. Um, yeah. The gear we were using was quite enormous at the time, but now, you know, these cameras can be one pound and you can put it on a drone, but my access is so sporadic. And the first film we made was called the operation. And it was Uh a sci-fi patient surgeon, sexual union in an, like kind of in an operating theater. Is that available anywhere? Pardon? Is that available to watch anywhere? It's hard to find. It's a, it's a cult film, and uh-huh. we never released it on DVD. It's on VHS still. Oh, cool. <laughs> but it is it it is kind of available on the internet, and it's been in film festivals all over the world. And I still get requests to screen it because it's, That's I would great. say, it's without peer. Um, and that was the first project I did that I was 25 years old. Wow. And I thought okay, I guess I might be an artist. <laughs> and so that was my first project. I guess if I'd gone to art school, that would have been my senior thesis. Right. You know, but, but it was an explicit film and that um, was a pretty bold project to make. And the filmmaker, you know, my collaborator and I were in the film because we couldn't find anyone to perform in it. Okay. And the camera was on its way. Everything was a real house of cards, right? Like we have this, we've sort of misrepresented ourselves to a major military contractor. The camera's on its way. We have to build a set and come up with all these costumes that are like, you know, hazmat outfits. And it was very like, 
you know, this kind of sinister setting we're building. And then we had the gear only for 72 hours. Wow. So we had to, you know, it was a very very elaborate sort of um, fine art prank. Yeah, really? And then when it, then we sat on the footage for a year. We were so terrified. We were like, oh, we're for sure going to go to jail. Yeah. And finally cut it together. And it first time it appeared was in the uh, New York Underground Film Festival in 1995. And we didn't even bother to go. We lived in Portland and, you know, broke artists. And we just thought, oh, we made a weird thing. And it won Best Experimental Film and then just took off from there. Oh, wow. And I realized like, oh, this thing has impact. Yeah. That's really um, cool. So that was the beginning of that work. And I just recently, um, just this past week, secured a sort of a new um, way of being able to use this gear. I approached a company a while ago and, you know, they know who I am based on that film. That's like a cult film. And it's been very hard to get folks to work with me based on that project which is a long time ago and the world has really changed, but it's what, still why do they not want to work with you? Because, well, I mean, you, you know, most of these places, they're corporate. They work with security firms, okay. the military. Yeah. I mean, they don't really want to be affiliated with this kind of wild card project. Right. It's explicit. Even, it if they, even if they secretly love the project. Yeah. So only recently have I been able, you know, I've had friends who work in different kinds of industries that were able to sort of sneak gear to me, but it's always very like, I never know what I'm going to get or when, and I have to be ready to make work. Like I've been making work in Hawaii for the past several years, Hmm. working, you know, with gear that a friend had and they just retired last week. So So, that gear is going away. So, so that's going away, but now I've just secured working with a new company and I'm going to be doing a public art project this summer um, oh, cool. in Harlem and I'm going to be using infrared video stills on nice. sort of like signage. So I have a project where people will be dressed. It won't be totally crazy, you know. <laughs> um, you know, it's a good project to start working with this company and see what we can do together. And I think they're excited to see you know, what work I can make that they could then use to market their products. It's a a symbiotic relationship. And I always present to different sort of industries, like, let me be your artist in residence and let's see what we can do together. That's a really smart idea. They can say no, but they might circle around and be like, well, let's check this out. Yeah. Yeah. That's really smart. And, and sounds like it works if you're patient. It works, but I mean, I'm infinitely patient. I'm That's ridiculously good. patient. That's great. <laughs> That's a really amazing thing to, to be able to say. You know, I think not many people are patient. mixed with tenacity. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you got a, a fair share of both, which is very, it's a, those are great tools for operating in the world. I, I could use, I'm, I'm, I've become patient over time. But it took it took some work, and uh, and I'm pretty tenacious, but I'm not very disciplined. So, Discipline's hard. Yeah, it's hard when you have a lot of interests and uh, and no no boss, like no you know no authority ever. Um, 
Uh, that's that just describes me to a T. I definitely have the you're not the boss of me gene. Yeah, I was born. As, I brought that over from probably five lifetimes ago because it was so so deeply instilled as a you know even as an infant. I was like, no, you're not gonna you're not telling me how this show is gonna be run. And uh, <laughs> and I and I'm happy that you know. I mean, it was probably I was I don't think I was like a brat or anything, but I was I think I was probably difficult to deal with because I was always using logic to get my way out of kind of anything that I didn't like, you know, if <laughs> I just needed, like you needed to tell me why I need to do something or else it's, I won't be willing to do it. Um, and then I carried that all through life and I probably, again, shot myself in the foot because of it. Cause I, I may have shut down some relationships that could have been available to me just by being like, no, I'm doing it by myself. Right. You know, um, I mean, I'm sure I've done that a lot because I don't, I just, I'm only recently learning how to ask anybody for help with anything. <laughs> that is a great lesson. I mean, I yeah. had to learn to ask for help when my dad died because I was only 28 and I had to settle his estate and it was a disaster. Mm. And it took me two years to get it figured out. And it was like having a really terrible day job for no pay. Right. You know, and I was an artist and bartending and traveling and going to film festivals all over the world and having this like, you know, very interesting life in my twenties. And then suddenly I was in this like very challenging situation and needing to grieve. And I had to learn to ask for help. Like I think it was 30 when I had my first solo show. I also got, I produced a, the first sex worker film and video festival with, um, Teresa Dulce, she was part, she was the founder of this nonprofit Danzine mm. and back to back, you know, having a solo show and a film festival on my 30th birthday, I got shingles Oh shit! and I was like, I'm so young. What is going on? And I realized then like, that was a strange gift getting shingles. It taught me, I need to learn to ask for help. Yeah. This idea that I have to do everything by myself really yeah. knocked me on my butt. And it took sort of a healthcare situation for me to kind of wake up and go, you cannot continue to live like this. That's how I coped with my grief over my dad's death was like, I just became insanely busy, mm -hmm. you know, and now I know I can't do, I can't manage that. And that was That's really good. hard for me to learn how to ask for help. Yeah. But yeah. But once you do, it's, I imagine it gets easier. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, Do you still, see the same but, sort of characteristics in your daughter of personality um, of like using logic and being able to kind of navigate in their own way, the way you did? I do see some of that. She she's definitely. I mean, it's funny. I, I was all concerned about her getting any sort of like critical thinking education in school because it just didn't seem like there was much of that going on. There wasn't mm -hmm. a lot of teaching. Um, and then I came to realize like she's absolutely a critical thinker and is always, she's always uh, a few steps ahead, but it's all, it's just internal. She just processes it internally and she may or may not share with you <laughs> her conclusions. Um, but yeah, I think she definitely is navigating her way in a similar way. I think her like personality wise, she's, she's a bit more like her mom. 
um, and and also just more pragmatic about things. She's more of a planner and scheduler, and you know talks about the details of things. And I I have none of that. I've, I'm, you know I can't. It, it's hard for me to even place experiences of my own life on a timeline. I, don't, I have no you know <laughs> I have no real concept of the the organization of events. It's just all this stuff happened and I could use other landmarks to get there, but it, but it doesn't, I don't think in that, in those terms. So um, my daughter and her mom are both sort of practical thinkers and less so, you know, artistic intuitive types. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, that's my take on it. Uh, I think my daughter's got some of that. She, she's definitely got some of the intuition going on uh, and I'm trying to foster that I'm trying to encourage her to listen to it as much as possible. I think intuition is so important as an added layer of information. Totally. You know, I think I use it more than most people as like a guiding principle, but, and I would love to have more practical framework. I mean, I'm pretty organized or I wouldn't be able to be, you know, self-employed artist, but I use it, my intuition as like kind of a, you know, major guiding principle, but the way I try to explain it to other people is like, you know, we have all these senses that we just wake up and have, you know, our five senses, but I think yeah. intuition is equally important. I think it's just been sort of uh, bred out of us as a species. Completely. You know, as we rely more and more on external constructs and, uh, ways of organizing our lives we don't listen to that internal voice yeah. and every time i've ignored that internal voice i have regretted it yeah that's really where my only real regret comes from yeah it's decisions based on ignoring what i kind of felt to be true yeah i feel the same you always know in your gut right when a thing is happening if, you, if you're able to tune in then and there to that feeling Mm -hmm. actually and and base your decision on it then you're gonna you'll be well guided um, but i also think there you know a lot of our learning has to come from ignoring our intuition and finding out the hard way and that's how we learn to listen to it it's by yes yes forgetting absolutely. to listen to it um and it's not you know it it can't really be taught but it can certainly be encouraged and you know, remind that you can remind people that it's, it is a valid sense that we have. It, it exists just like the other ones. Um, and we do, we wake up with it just like the other five, if we want to use it. Um, I think, I mean, I think that it's, it's not pointed out to, to kids early enough as a thing to pay attention to. I, I actually, we brought our daughter to this, um, to a self-defense class once. And the teacher was so cool. He, he had, I think he had, I can't remember. He had three or four daughters and he was all into martial arts and, you know, self-sufficiency and, you know, just being, being able to take care of yourself. But he, he really stressed intuition as the, as the guiding principle behind all, you know, behind judging a situation. Like if you're, if you're in a situation and you're feeling like something's not right, 
listen to that and get out. You know, he was putting it all in the context of safety and self-defense. And that. Mm -hmm. But it was so cool to have him introducing these young girls to the idea of intuition instead of, you know, doing what your friends are doing or doing what you're supposed, you know, what the boy is telling you you're supposed to be doing. Or, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was just nice that it was being like, it's not just about kicking somebody's ass. It's about like listening to your own feelings about, Hey, is this where I should be yourself. right now? Yeah. Yeah. Learning to trust yourself and, you know, culturally women are not taught to do that. You know, in right. the patriarchal world, we're taught to sort of listen from the top down what's what we're being told to do. But I think it's fantastic. Like in the con context of self-defense to trust your gut. Totally. And trust yourself. And you can apply that to any part of your life. Yeah, and that's what he was saying too. And that's I really love that. That that's just just as a as a foundational principle, like to keep that intact. You know, it's a good thing to have like you said too, as additional information. You can still look at all the facts or as you call them, facts. Uh, right. Um, but if you're not listening to your your heart or whatever it is inside that's telling you what's right, um, then you're good, you will likely go astray with just the facts. wonder what it what it's like for someone who doesn't they, they don't even think like it like intuition doesn't even enter the conversation you know like their whole life is lived with just here are the rules and here's what you do and here's why you do it and don't you know don't ask questions if it doesn't feel right uh, and i, I wonder even in the scientific that. community they're having to sort of acknowledge that there is room for the spiritual and intuition or if you want to call it psychic ability. I mean, I think they're, they all these things sort of dovetail together. Yeah. I'm um, so happy that that's finally. Yeah. I mean, with quantum physics, we're seeing you can be in two places at once. That explains a lot of things we experience with plant medicine, you know, that there's yeah. multiple dimensions, dimensionalities happening. I think it's really exciting that, science and philosophy and you know art and by extension you know music and writing all those things are far more related there's more overlap yeah and there was at, at one time in history that was a, you know philosophy and the arts were very closely linked uh and we we drifted away from it i think because of science and technology and industrial revolution and uh but i think we're drifting back because it's what it, it's what it feels right um, and humans need that they need to be creative to feel alive i think in, in some in one way or another you have to be you have to be able to experience life as an expressive creative being yeah beauty and creativity are they're valid pursuits and valid uh experiences that, that we need for survival right 
Yeah, it's you can't just be about production. You can't just like rub sticks, build fire, make food, you know, just to feed the organism to stay alive. You have to have, you know, beauty and enrichment. Yeah, enrichment, creativity. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you can do it the other way, but what? Who wants that? Who wants that life? Like that. that I feel like that's what humans are recognizing finally after going so far in that direction. Like. Ultimately, is that really what you're looking for? It's just to like have all your needs met the second you ask for it and have every product available and secure every every minute of your life on the planet. I don't know. I think people it doesn't are make us happy ultimately. Not at all. And I'm hoping that that's what you're calling the big reset. I hope that a lot of people took it that way and are really going to make changes that, you know, benefit their lives just open up their ability to see what's actually valuable to them it's definitely happening you know with this great what is it called the great resignation right well a lot of people are just like i'm not going to work a crappy job be abused on the job you know basically rent yourself out in order to barely be able to pay your own rent yeah i think it's it's beautiful that that's finally happening this is what i'd love to see a living wage happen you know, if we all had a living wage, then we could hopefully have more time for creativity and beauty and, you know, yeah. the arts, and we would be a healthier society. Yeah, you know, just having our... Going all the way down to healthcare and how we live our lives and being more present. Right. We'd be a healthier society. For sure. Yeah, I mean, all the ways that um, yeah, I think mo- most of the ways that we're unhappy and sort of tortured in our lives have to do with unmet expectations that didn't originate with us. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. it's like so- somebody else's plan for us that didn't that didn't go according to plan, and then we're you know our lives are a mess because of it. We're not successful because we didn't live up to some prescribed you know, way of being which to me is totally nuts. Like we're, we're, every one of us is born as a different expression of consciousness. We get to do whatever the hell we want with, with that. So the idea that you would just sign up for, you know, to get in line and do what everybody else does is, that just is sad to me. That just makes me claustrophobic sort of, you know? Yeah, it's, it's quite depressing. Yeah, I just want to help people like get up and out of that shit. And I think, and it's not, it's not like it's me. It's my duty to do it or anything. But it's just what I wish for everyone. And I think that sometimes it takes a, you know, earth-shaking event to do it. But I think it may. I think it's going to work for a big chunk of the population. You know, they're all going to quit their jobs or stop, stop slaving away. It's for somebody else. You know, I don't know how. We come out of this pandemic with more personal meaning, more connection to self, to mm-hmm. others, to our community, family. Have you been hearing that from people? Do you feel like your friends and people you talk to are having that experience? I think so. But my friends tend to be, you know, either in the arts or in healthcare. Mm-hmm. The healthcare people are burned out and they want to do something else that's more meaningful in a different way. Because, you know, the healthcare system is so broken and, you know, people in the arts are still struggling to 
be able to afford to, you know, pay their rent, have a studio, um, are, you know, creatives are having to learn a whole new way of exhibiting their art. You know, galleries yeah. are changing. Things are more online. You have to be incredibly flexible, but if you can weather that flexibility and respond to what's happening around you, you know, connecting your work to not all work has to be artwork has to be, you know, political or necessarily, um, you know, responding directly to what's happening around you, but it, you do need to be a part of the world you're in. And I don't mean that in terms of success. I just think uh, being connected to your community is really important. And when I was younger, I don't think I, you know, I don't think I saw it so clearly. I think I thought of it in a literal sense. Yeah. You know, community, being part of your community and responding to what's happening around you. And I don't know, I think that's part of love. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm, I'm struggling with it a bit because I've, I'm so, I'm so reclusive by nature and it's become more so not just with age, but because of the world events and, um, it's just sort of the direction my life is going. I, I, I like being at home and I like working on stuff at home. Um, so I'm not so much a part of my community, but once I start engaging more by sharing my art, then I feel like I will be again. And, uh, I've just been in this sort of period of gestation and trans transition. Um, yeah. But this podcast so, is part of being part of your community. That's true. I mean, I was, exists, you know, anybody at any time can get up in the middle of the night and <laughs> listen that's true. Thank you for saying that. And all these voices that you're assembling. And so, you know, you're a natural connector of people. And so, and that's an important, I mean, I'm a connector as well. I'm not an artist that makes art just to exist in my studio and be alone. I'm, I'm an, I'm a connector of people. Yeah. In all ways. And, you know, I think connectors um, bring about, well, connection and change and I don't know, I think it's grounding. Collaboration. Collaboration. I mean, my all my work is collaborative in some way. Even when I make, you know, portrait sitting, I consider to be my all of my portraits are environmental and collaborative. Hmm. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, I think your podcast is part of, you know, you connecting to your community. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for saying so. I, 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 I think because I've slowed down with it so much, it, it's less... Um, on my mind as as a way in which I'm out there and doing that, you know. But it but it is true. Every time I talk to somebody, I remember it's it's very life affirming, you know. Um, and it does, yeah. It feels like it's an extended community that will continue to grow. And it's even if it's a slow growth, um, there are connections being made and things, you know, people are new ideas are being formed and. It's sharing, sharing of life, you know? Beautiful. So I feel good to be able to do whatever little part of that I can from my little hidey hole, you know? <laughs> I, th- I think that's part of why the, the format appealed to me. It's like, I, I can do it from home. I can do this and do all, you know, make all these great connections and not leave this one room. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> It's where I spend all my time. It's like where, where my art studio, my music studio, everything's all in the center of this beautiful house I live in. 
Um, so yeah, it's hard to leave. There's not much pulling me out these days. Um, but I appreciate, I mean, it's really nice to talk to you and, and to hear about how important that aspect of your life is because it's a good reminder. I need to keep keep people in the mix in my because I can go off in my private world for quite some time without having to check in. Right. Um, and I think it I, when I do check in, then I remember, oh yeah, it's, this is really valuable and fun and you know interesting and exciting. So I have to. It's good to be reminded. So thank you. You're welcome. And thanks for everything, for talking about yourself and your work and everything. Um, I have a question. When is your, your, you mentioned your art show is in August. Where is it? Oh, it's at this, it's not an actual gallery, but it's my friend's little uh, corner boutique. She, she makes clothing and she paints and she, Ooh. I think she sells other people's art and uh, crafts and things. So she, for a few years now she's been supporting local artists um and just hanging their their work for a month uh, every month um so and she's she happens to be my neighbor across the street and we've become friends and she's now my cat sitter and uh but anyway it's called lola the gallery is called lola and her name is lola and it's in noe valley in san francisco in where noe valley okay yeah and I think the opening will be on August first. I don't. I don't know that for sure, but but the show will be up in August. I might be able to be there. Oh, awesome! That'd be great. Um, I'm going to be doing a career development workshop for artists called Kipai Pai. Oh, cool! And it's in Mill Valley, so I will be in the Bay Area area on that day. Oh, that's awesome! So well, I will. I will try to be there. Oh, thank you. That's really yeah. sweet. It'll be nice well, to meet in person. It will be, yeah. Well, let's, yeah, let's definitely keep in touch, and uh, I'll let you know if there's an official announcement uh, about the show. Excellent, uh, I'm excited. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited too. It's been a long time since I've shown anything outside of my house or on Instagram, and, uh, and my work. I think I think anybody's work is better in person. But, uh, oh, yeah, collo- I'm, I'm an in per- yeah in person is exactly where it's at for me i mean it's uh i'm so happy to be able to return to it now yeah it feels really good to view art and music and you know spoken word and in person we're really meant to connect that way yeah and i'm glad that all those artists have an outlet again there are people who are probably going out of their minds lots of them exactly (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Justin, for having me on your podcast. It's been, uh, I know it took us a while to arrive at a date and time, but it was worth it. And I just trusted the whole process, like, you know, very, very intuitively that Paul Brainerd was like, oh, you really should talk to my friend, Justin, and do this podcast. And I was like, oh, absolutely. I'm so glad. Thanks so much for uh, for being open and willing and uh you know just to hang with my freewheeling style no, no format really uh, and um yeah i'm excited i want to see your work in person because i've only seen it on little little pictures on a screen um and yeah it'd be great to actually cross paths in the 3d universe 
Yeah, that would be lovely. I'll definitely, I'll definitely try to make it to your opening. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I will, I'll be in touch about when this is coming out and, um, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Definitely. I have one quick question. Okay. When you do the little musical breaks, can I, can I put in a, a song request for a snippet of music? Is it something that you have that you've done, or something you have rights to? Um, it's probably stuff. It's stuff that I've have rights to because I've used it in my work. Oh, okay. Who whose music is it? It's uh, my friend Gavin Wilson. He's a he's an artist, visual artist, but also a composer. Um, you definitely need music that you've got the rights to. Is that correct? I think so. I mean, I've never asked anybody's. I've I've only ever used my own or my guests. Oh, you have your own music. Yeah, I make my own music for oh, old. Oh, no, use for, your music. Use your music. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I'm I'm happy to listen to your friends and consider sure. it for an interlude. I usually do instrumentals. Right. Um, yeah, this is I, no lyrics. Um, but I'm happy to consider it if it, you know, if sure. you want to promote your friend and if it's music you think. Sure. Uh, I, I, I mean, that's, for me, is a big part of the fun of editing is looking for those those breaks a good spot to well that's so great see there's there's like another layer of your creativity you know yeah yeah it's so cool thank you yeah that's that's a lot of what why the podcast appealed to me because i knew i could start inserting these other i think i started to say that earlier and never finished but that like putting my music out there in a way that i didn't have to formally have a band or a you know all these other channels um, yeah. it, that's been really good for me it's very it's very rough like most things in my life it's just uh, you know it's i go with the feeling I, I i always make at least one interlude specifically for my guest oh, with, them, wow. with them in mind and, and um i try to sort of channel your essence as i'm playing and then uh and then the others yeah i either also record on the spot or um or i look through some of my archives of little noodlings i've done oh no that's exciting yeah thanks yeah it's really fun it's a it's it's i'm happy to be i i just have so much else going on that this is sort of taking a back seat and i'm happy to be to bringing it back to the front for a minute so oh, exciting yeah so um so thank you. Yeah, thanks again for making the time and um, being on the right coast so we could do it. Yeah, this made it a lot easier being in the same time zone. I agree. Yeah. I've done a few where, you know, it's either I'm waking up at the crack of dawn or or they're way up later than they want to be. Um, so this is good. Excellent. And, um, well, have a beautiful rest of your day. And, thank you. Um, you too. We'll be in touch. Thank you so much, Justin. Thanks, Brian. It's great talking to you. Okay, talk soon. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was my friend Marn Lucas. Uh, you can and should, dare I say should, Go check out her website, which is marnlucas.com, M-A-R-N-E-L-U-C-A-S.com. She's got 
a ton of really cool projects and uh you kind of have to see them to to understand what it's all about so um i want to say thank you to Marin for the conversation i want to say thank you to paul brainerd for introducing us um you can check out his interview too if you go back a few uh i want to say thank you to you listeners whoever's out there i love you you ding dongs big old ding dongs i love you no matter what you do um you know things things roll things happen life unfolds and here we are so uh let's let's try to remember that we're kind of the same you and me uh you and i it's the proper english there you and i are the same yeah we're not the same but we're the same you know what i mean we are one let's try acting like it okay until next time uh be well be who you are don't worry about um trying to be something you're not or achieving some unreasonable goal you are perfection incarnate so just live and be and don't even worry about being happy you can be sad you can be mad you can be anything you can be anything you want to be you get to choose um, i don't know why i'm telling you this i'm not the authority but i'm telling you because that's how i'm telling myself that everything's okay and it's going to be okay even when it's not okay well the end love you talk to you next time bye